right. Good morning, guys. We are continuing our study through the book of James this morning, and we're looking at uh, kind of a troubling theme because it's exposing to all of us, and that's the contrast between what James would call false religion and true religion, or what we would say is false Christianity and true Christianity. And so what he's really doing throughout this book is he's contrasting what it means to truly believe in Jesus and what it means to fake belief in Jesus, which I think overlaps with a conversation that's going on in our culture right now. There has been widespread criticism of evangelicalism. So one way to state this is to say that one thing that Christians and non-Christians can agree on is that they're suspicious of Christians. And that's for good reason. Recently, one of the more troubling things that came out was this public scandal involving the Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias. So I don't know if you guys have read up on this, but to the world's eyes, Ravi Zacharias was an upstanding man and a defender of the truth of God's word. But behind the scenes, he was a serial sexual predator, which came out after his death. And so the question becomes, okay, how do we think about that? How do we interpret that as Christian believers? And there's untold other stories that we could tell about scandals inside of the church. And what James would say is that things aren't always as they appear. And so he's going to keep giving definition to us throughout this letter as to what true Christianity is all about. And so what we're going to see this morning is sort of opening the opening of the main theme of the book, which, which is that true religion includes both receiving and obeying the word. In other words, true Christianity means that you don't just intellectualize your faith. You haven't just believed it in the sense that you have mentally assented to it, but you also obey the truth that you claim to know. So we're going to get some, some pretty straightforward exhortations from James. James is a straight shooter. He tells you like it is. And so the first exhortation we get from James is to receive the word. Okay, so we're looking at verses 19 through 21 to start. We do, do a pretty simple thing at Salt City. We just go straight through books of the Bible. So we're just picking up where we left off last week. He says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Okay, so the first thing to notice about the text is James writes to his beloved brothers. In other words, he's writing to Christians. 
And in the previous section, he defined what a Christian was. It's somebody who has been born again through the word of God. So somebody who has believed and received the word of God. And he's writing to Christians, and he makes these interesting exhortations. And I say interesting because it reveals that Christians are still in process. He says that as Christians, we should be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger, and that we should put away all filthiness in rampant wickedness. So here's what's true of being a Christian. Even though we've been saved by the grace of God, we've been filled by the Holy Spirit, it is still possible for us to sin and to sin flagrantly, to sin in a way that would be publicly shameful. I think that's what he's talking about when he talks about filthiness and rampant wickedness. So it's possible for a beloved Christian, somebody who is a child of God, to sin in flagrant ways. And so don't be surprised if there are filthy and wicked desires that compete for your attention and affection and your very life as a Christian. That is normal as a Christian. And so what James is setting us up for is to battle with our desires. And here's what he's saying in this text. As somebody who has, in one sense, received the word in an ongoing way in your life as a Christian, you must receive the word. But the first thing you have to do in order to receive the word is you have to say no to yourself. You have to say no to your desires. All of us want to be quick to speak and slow to hear, and we want to do whatever we desire because we believe that what we desire will make us happy. And James is saying, here's what you need to do as a Christian. Every day of your life, you need to say no to the person that you normally call yourself. There is a huge negative in the Christian life. The way that Jesus puts this is that on a daily basis, we need to take up our cross and follow him. Those desires are not going to go away. They must be resisted. They must be crucified. So that's the first thing. There's this negative. But Christianity, contrary to popular belief, is not mainly a negative. It's a negative so that there can be a grand positive in your life. And the way that James puts the positive is in the second half of verse 21, and he exhorts us to with meekness receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So here's the amazing thing. As a Christian, what has happened in your life is the word of God 
has been implanted. Now, Jesus told this parable of the soils, and he says that it's possible for your heart or the soil of your heart to be hard like rocky ground, or it's possible for your soul to be soft and for it to be like good, rich, nutritious soil. But what's true of a Christian is that they have good, nutritious soil, which has been created in them, not by their own moral effort, but by a gift from above, by the Holy Spirit. And so the word of God has been implanted in you like a seed. And what that seed needs is it needs to be cultivated and it needs time in order for it to grow. And even though it's been implanted, what James is saying is there are ways that you can cause that seed to grow or there are ways that you can stunt that seed's growth. And he says the way to cultivate the seed's growth is to receive the seed with meekness. Now, the word meek isn't a word that we use very often. I thought this uh, quote from A.W. Tozer was helpful for us to understand what meekness is. Here's how he spells it out. He says, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more import than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. So being meek is not to be weak. It's to have your strength under the control of a greater strength, the strength of God himself. So to be meek under the word of God is to be wise. It is to say, God knows more about life than I do. So when I come to a fork in the road between my desires and what God's word says, I receive his word. I'm going to stop being fooled about myself. I'm going to believe what God says about me, both negatively and positively, and I am going to submit myself to the word of God. That is the essence of the fight of the Christian life. It's not about externals as much as it's about submission of your desires to desires of God, which he shares with us in his word. So interestingly enough, this word receive is really helpful because the word receive in this passage is a, it's a hospitality word. In other words, when he's calling us to receive with meekness, What James is calling us to do is to welcome the word of God into 
the home of our hearts. So I, I don't know about you guys, but um, I think the hospitality language is really helpful because all of us know that hospitality is, is both a great joy, but it also is difficult. And so I was thinking uh, about this. My family, uh, when I was in college, lived right around the corner from our church. And that meant whenever there was like an outside missionary visiting, they stayed at our house. And one time there was this puppet ministry. Yes, there is something <laughs> such as puppet ministry, which we will never have at our church. But that's beside the point. There's a puppet ministry and these Ukrainian puppeteers, puppetists, I don't know, they were staying at our house. And so I had two twin beds in my room at the time. And that meant that one of these guys was staying in my room with me. And so we went to bed, everything went great. The guy didn't snore or anything like that. Things were going well. And we're, uh, we're sleeping and then all of a sudden I hear, good morning, Drew. I'm like, what in the world is going on? My room at the time had no windows and it. it was completely dark. And I think it was about 4.45 in the morning. And this guy apparently woke up at 4.45 in the morning and wanted some breakfast. So here I am like 19 years old and I'm taking this guy upstairs to get him breakfast at 4.45 in the morning and he's just talking my ear off. He wants coffee, you know, he wants eggs, whatever. I'm just ma I'm making it for him. But here's what's going on inside of me. You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> but, but here's what hospitality called for in that moment. A strong no to this is what I want and a strong yes to this is what the Ukrainian puppeteer wants, <laughs> right? That's what hospitality demands of us. And if you are going to be hospitable to the word of God, there is a strong no, a strong continual no to yourself and a continual strong yes to the word of God, which will at times feel like it is ruining your life and will be your greatest joy. Because to say yes to God, to say no to ourselves, which is the essence of receiving the word of God, is the pathway to joy. It's like the old hymn, trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Okay, so that's receiving the word. But James gets a, a little bit more pointed with us. Says it's not just okay to think about this sort of at the surface level of receiving and submitting. He wants us to think about it also as obeying the word. Okay, James 1, verses 22 through 25. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, 
He will be blessed in his doing. Okay, so there's this internal battle going on. Will I speak? Will I listen? Will I get angry? Or will I be humble? Will I be meek? Or will I sort of exercise my own will? And here's how you can tell whether you are winning this battle or whether you need some improvement. You're losing the battle. That is, is my life characterized by being a hearer, in other words, coming to church services and hearing the word of God only, or is my life in reality as far as the way that I plan my daily steps, is that being marked by the word of God? Do I have the form of Christianity or do I have the reality of Christianity in my life? So it's possible to be super knowledgeable about what the Bible says. It's possible to be a pastor, to teach other people the Bible, and yet not have the Bible shape your actual life. Okay, so the mark of Christian discipleship, he says, is obedience. So it's possible to be like this person who goes to the Word of God, looks at it like you would look into a mirror, and goes away from it, having even been stirred by it, maybe have your emotions worked up by it, and to immediately forget what was there. Like going to a mirror, looking at yourself in the mirror, going away, and immediately forgetting what you looked like, which is the whole point of looking into a mirror, to remember what you look like. You fix your hair a little bit. But it's so that you can do something about it. He's saying, how ridiculous to be a person who takes on the outward form of religion without putting it into practice. Now, imagine that you were in a phone conversation with a physical trainer. And imagine that that person was giving you all sorts of amazing advice on how to get into shape. And so they've helped you out with a workout plan. They've helped you out with a diet plan. They've crossed every T. They've dotted every I. And they've told you exactly how to implement that in, into their life. And they've shared with you sort of a testimonial, like this, is, this has really worked for me. Okay, it's during COVID, so you've just talked to them on the phone. COVID ends. You meet up with them in person, and this person wants to meet you at McDonald's. They weigh 500 pounds. And it is evident from their life that they have never listened to any of their own advice. Question. Do you want to continue with that person as your physical trainer? For me, I think that my perception would immediately change because you don't want to learn from somebody just that knows all of the right information. Even if that information is good, you want to learn from somebody who has put that into practice in the hard realities of daily life. Because you would say, in a sense, that that 
expert on health is a hypocrite. Because there's this connection between receiving the information and obeying the information that is vital to calling yourself a health expert. And James is saying something very simple here. There is no such thing as somebody who has received the word of God, but does not put it into practice. Because the doing of the word is the evidence of true receiving of the word. And so we all must examine ourselves. And I think for many of us, this is the hardest part. We have to reinterpret what we define a Christian as. Just because someone that we love in the past has called themselves a Christian, or just because we have called ourselves a Christian, does not mean that they are or that we are. And it is so easy for us to start to justify our own behavior and to justify the behavior of others and say, yeah, they were a Christian, but they didn't really read their Bible and I can't really think of any time that they shared their faith with somebody else. And come to think of it, I can't really think of any specific evidence from their life that they were a Christian. But I know that they came to Christ at church camp at some point. So, of course, they're a believer. And I think we've got to, if we're going to take what the Bible says seriously, we have to re-examine that line of thinking. And we have to say that a Christian is someone whose receiving of the word has become evident in their life. And here's what James does next, just to drive home this point. So we've said, we need to receive the word, we need to obey the word, and here's what James says in the last point. No, really, obey the word. Okay? So, so, so far, he said, we need to receive it, the implanted word by submitting to it, and that means being a doer of the word. But James is that guy who says, okay, let me give you three tests. He's an application guy. He's an exhorter. And so he's going to give us three tests in this section. James 1, 26 through 27. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, so this is where we get this word religious from. And when James talks about religion, he's talking about how we define what Christianity is. And here's his continual big challenge. 
If someone were to give you evidence, ask you for evidence of whether or not you are a Christian, what we are tempted to say in American evangelicalism and what people were uh, tempted to say in James' day is to define their religion by the outward ceremony. So you would say, well, I come to church on the weekend and I'm vitally involved in a connection group and I give money to the church. And so what you do is you define your religion by sort of this set of outward measurables. Attendance. Easily defined metrics. And James is saying, I want you to think differently about religion. And I want you to get to the heart of the matter. What commentators say about this is don't limit yourself to the specific applications that James is giving in the text, but allow those applications to open up more and more and more applications. Because what James is doing here is he's giving us categories with which we can examine ourselves. And so the first category that he gives is words. And he says something really convicting here. He says, if you think that you're religious, in other words, if you're like, I go to church, I go to connection group, therefore I'm a Christian, but you do not bridle your tongue, you deceive your heart. And he doesn't say, well, it's okay. Everybody has sin. He says, your religion, your Christianity itself is worthless. So the question is, do I gossip about people? Am I talking about people behind their back? Am I using my words to build people up or am I using my words to tear people down? The, the specific thing that James wants us to get out of it is, do I know when it's time to shut my mouth? He says, many of us within the church, we don't know how to bridle our tongue. We don't know how to say, whoa, don't say that. It's not appropriate. It's not the time. That will tear somebody up. And so we come to church but what we're doing is not building up the church, but we're tearing the church apart through our criticisms, through our anger, through our gossip, and through our slander. So what we say with our attendance is, I'm a person who loves the church. But what we say with our words is, I could care less about these people. And James says... We need to examine our words. And if we aren't the type of people who are willing to examine our words, our religion ends up being irreligion. It ends up being non-Christianity. It ends up being worthless, not helpful to anyone. 
And he describes pure and undefiled religion. The first thing he says is that it is a religion of compassion. So he's not limiting the application to taking care of orphans and widows, but he's saying, are you just hanging out with the popular, pretty, rich people? Are you just hanging out with people that boost your self-confidence, make you feel good about yourself? Are you coming to church and are you part of that connection group because those people are meeting some need in you to have a certain social status? Or are you investing your life in people who will never be able to pay you back? Are your relationships and the way that you spend time any different from the way that the world invests in their relationships and spends their time? Or are you investing in the kingdom of God? Is your life marked by compassion? And and interestingly, he's not just talking about giving money. He's He's not talking about Um, just serving in such a way that you can sort of check a box. But he uses this language of visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. And so what we have here is actual proximity. There's time spent. There's apparently touch happening. There is real compassion being shown through you. We live in a time where not only inside of the church, but also outside of the church, there is a lot of talk going on about showing compassion to the least of these, but there is very little effort in showing compassion to the least of these. James is saying, if you're a doer of the word, it means that your life will be marked by compassion. It's your life marked by that type of compassion. Okay, interestingly, we have one group of people in society who's really into compassion and social action, and they're with me at this point. They're like, yeah, go get them. Tell people to be compassionate, to care for the least of these, the marginalized and immigrants and the poor, and to be concerned about race race issues. People are with me, but they don't like the next phrase. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, here's how you know that it's the Bible talking and that it's not one of us talking. Because it keeps compassion and sexual purity in the same sentence. The only thing separating them is a comma. He says compassion, yes. Social action, yes. Care for the poor and the marginalized, yes. Do you look at porn? Are you living with your boyfriend or girlfriend? 
Are you swiping on Tinder? Are you compromising sexually with your eyes? Remember Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Because even to look at someone with lust is to commit adultery in your heart. To keep yourself unstained from the world means that you are constantly saying no at the level of your desire to what you want in the sexual arena. And so to say, yeah, I'm with Jesus on the compassion thing, but I'm out on the sexual purity thing is to say I'm not with Jesus. Because Jesus says both. How is it possible that we can submit ourselves to these standards when there is so much pressure around us from every side to compromise these standards? And quite frankly, there's so much failure in our lives in the past. How can we hope to move forward to make progress? I think that one of the keys comes from the previous section, verse 25 of James 1. He said, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres. Okay, here's how sometimes we can think about the commands of scripture. We think about them as prisons. We don't think of the law of God as the law of liberty. We think of it as the law that takes away our liberty. And James says that the key is to see that God has your best at heart, that he wants what's good for you. The Bible calls Jesus the good doctor or the good physician. And he has given us the law, not to take away our freedom, but as a prescription of what true freedom is. Okay, guys, so two years ago, year and a half ago, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And it was a long battle. I had a a lot of joint pain and um, was looking for answers. And I met with a doctor at one point in the Twin Cities, and she said to me, you have two choices. One is you can get on this medication called methotrexate. And if you take 10 pills every Monday, you'll be playing golf, which I love golf, in two months. And if you don't take it, you're going to live crippled for the rest of your life. I said, I will take option one. (laughs) And here's the thing. I am normally a pretty kind of disorganized and forgetful person. Every Monday. I take my 10 pills. Why? Because to me, taking those 10 pills is life. It's to be without pain. It's to live with freedom. It's because I believe my doctor when she says, this is going to help you. 
And the evidence of that is every Monday, I'm taking the pills. Here's the evidence that you have received the word of God into your life, that you have true religion, that you have the real thing. It's that when Jesus says things that you don't understand about your words, about the way that you should spend your time caring for the poor, or about your sexual purity, that you believe him. That you believe that it will lead to your freedom. And so every Monday and every Tuesday and every Wednesday and every Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday, throughout the entire week, you conform your life to the prescription of the good doctor. You don't believe that he is keeping you from freedom, but that he is giving you the pathway to freedom. Here's what the writer J.I. Packer says about this very thing. Truth obeyed, said the Puritans, will heal. The word fits because we are all spiritually sick, sick through sin, which is a wasting and killing disease of the heart. The unconverted are sick unto death. Those who have come to know Christ and have been born again continue sick, but they are gradually getting better as the work of grace goes on in their lives. The church, however, is a hospital in which nobody is completely well and anyone can relapse at any time. Pastors, no less than others, are weakened by pressure from the world, the flesh, and the devil with their lures of profit, pleasure, and pride. And as we shall see more fully in a moment, pastors must acknowledge that they, the healers, remain sick and wounded and therefore need to apply the medicines of Scripture to themselves as well as to the sheep whom they tend in Christ's name. All Christians need Scripture truth as medicine for their souls at every stage and the making and accepting of applications is the administering and swallowing of it. You see? To take in the scripture is to go to the doctor and get the pill. To obey it is to put it in your mouth and swallow it. And so I'm encouraging you don't tell God that you're going to take a step of faith this week. Don't tell him that you're going to obey him. Obey him and find life. Be doers of the word. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for your uh, straightforward little brother. We need James in our lives. We need somebody who's going to cut through all the garbage, all of our excuses, and is just going to say, be sexually pure shut your mouth, take care and show compassion. We need to be moved out of our spiritual apathy to action. And we know that what we've been doing hasn't been working. And so would you move us to action? Would you animate us by your Holy Spirit so that we can obey you this week in, in our real lives, moment by moment? In Jesus' name I pray.